0: My name is Claire Weiss, and you're listening to The Drop. The Drop is an investigative, mindful, and creative dive into the future. Each episode will ask a question or investigate an issue around equality, sustainability, or a better future. So this episode we really wanted to talk about technology and its role in fashion, its role in our everyday lives, and really kind of the ultimate question, can technology save us?
1: Save us from what? Maybe eminent doom? Okay, that's one way to put it. I mean it feels like it is eminent <laughs> doom because we have this report come out this past couple weeks ago now. Last week,
2: the IPCC report, which I think is International Panel of Climate Change. International Panel of Climate Change which essentially has said we've got 12 years to save the planet. So
3: um, an episode on technological solutions is super relevant. There's obviously so much in the report that's like important to think about, but the main thing it basically said was that really urgently we need to take carbon out of the air you suddenly think oh actually it's not just necessarily about our like small behaviors it's like no no we need something really just drastic urgent solutions to happen
1: the other thing about the ipcc report is that it's kind of making the case for why we need technology i'm someone who does not like technology i like to sort of look around and go let's be more altruistic let's consume less let's use less plastic let's just behave better and change the world that way, and technology is confusing, and it's a cop-out, and that's sometimes my honest opinion. But then on the other hand, you have this report come out that says, up until now, we've known about climate change, most people believe in it at this point, and we haven't been able to combat it, so maybe we need a big player like technology to come in and save us from ourselves effectively.
0: That reminds me of a clip from SNL last week, which was hilariously depressing in a way. Um, and well, I'll just go ahead and play it for you.
4: This story has been stressing me out all week. I just keep asking myself, why don't I care about this? <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, I 100% believe in climate change, yet, I'm willing to do absolutely nothing about it. I mean, we're all going to lose the planet. We should be sad, right? This whole episode should be like a telethon or something, but it's not. I think it's because they keep telling us we're going to lose everything, and nobody cares about everything. People only care about some things.
2: Oh, Claire, you're so right. That is hilarious, but it is also kind of depressing because I feel like that is the reality with a lot of people's mindsets.
3: Yeah, that clip really reminded me of basically the reality of the relationship that people have with clothing, it's like just because you know something's a bit naughty, like with fast fashion, like you know that it's not good for the environment, there's probably all these like social issues, like labor issues, but you still prioritize, you just bury that and you still prioritize that cultural thing of like, oh, but I need a new top for Friday night or I can afford this, I've just been paid or that kind of stuff and you kind of just don't really think about the consequences.
1: It's kind of like prohibition, like if you tell someone not to do something, it kind of makes you think, Well, no, I
3: need to do it. Yeah, I think it's that thing. Just because something's naughty, you can't just expect people not to do it. Like, people are naughty. If we're just accepting that consumers are going to shop in this way and behave
2: in this way, B, you're completely right by saying, okay, then maybe we do need to use technology. But I do find that idea quite scary because I've always been one to think, ah, we don't just need, like, another technology. Like, we don't need to be on the iPhone 10 or 11 or 15 or whatever we're on at the moment. So what are these, like, technological solutions that we can use that feel like they
3: are more human-centric. Yeah, or sometimes they actually feel like they're almost stalling the actual thing that needs to happen, which is the behaviour change underneath. It's like just like a little shortcut, and it's like, guys, actually, fundamentally, like we need to change something. I feel like it's worth
1: kind of realising technology does change our behaviour. People are different because an iPhone exists. It's kind of like that idea that Mm. technology changes culture, and then culture invents technology, and it's this weird circle effect.
0: So that was why I was interested in sitting down with Kate, Becky and Natsai because I really wanted to showcase to you guys that there are people that are working in fashion tech and that are interested in putting that human behaviour right in the middle of their technological solutions.
3: So first up, we spoke to Dr. Kate Goldsworthy and Professor Rebecca Early, who are researchers at the Centre for Circular Design.
2: There was actually a point of Becky's that I really resonated with where she said, you know, she's always been a bit reluctant to use technology, but she, it was kind of something that she's had to use throughout her practice. And it did make me think, if you, aside from going completely off the grid, actually, is there any things that we can do, or any solutions that we can implement which are completely devoid of using technology?
1: Yeah, I think it's so true that everyone sort of has different comfort levels with technology. I mean, I personally like to say, oh, I don't know that much about fashion tech, but when I shop, it's often online. And I think that you know, technology is sometimes what's happening all around us, but it's, we don't think of it as technology until it becomes old, if that makes sense.
0: I think that's a really good point about noting that technology is all around us and we often don't notice it because I think to me, that's when technology is successful. And when it's able to be implemented in our daily lives, it should be something that can just help rather than hurt our everyday interactions.
2: I guess, and that's so different—that concept of technology being something that you don't really realise—to the other person you interviewed, site because what she is doing actually is something that is so different, so
3: extraordinary, just something that isn't instantly accessible. Actually, I would, yeah, I would almost say that it's like it's an example of really innovative technology, and actually when unlike the technology we have around us that just fits into our life and it already fits into the behaviour we have right now. What's really interesting with side is a massive disruptor. It's almost like we have this one behaviour, this one way of doing things with materials, and the research that she's doing is totally disrupting that whole attitude of how we apply technology to materials and how we make things. So Natsai Audrey Chiesa is the founder of Faber Futures, and
1: what she talks about and her sort of relationship to materials and technology is this process she invented of dyeing textiles with bacteria. Natsai is basically working with fashion textiles outside of a commercial space. She's not taking a textile and thinking about how she can lower its environmental impact and then get it into the high street store next season. She's essentially thinking about a long process that might revolutionize completely how we dye and how we think about materials And it's really important to think about how we revolutionize the way we make materials because
0: it's our current system is really destructive. Going back to the IPCC report, that's the cause of a lot of our problems that's brought us here today. Ultimately, that was why I wanted you guys to hear from her because I had been inspired by her work because I am ultimately... interested in biotechnology. So when biology meets technology. What's fascinating about Natsai's work is how she's able to work together with nature and sort of redefine our relationship with nature through technology. So first off, we sat down with Dr. Kate Goldsworthy. Hello,
4: hello, I'm Kate
0: and Professor Rebecca Early Hello, I'm Becky who are co-directors of the
5: Centre for Circular Design here in London which we set up in the summer, really, last year, 2017 and my job is to, with Kate, lead on the research and the industry-related practice and the support and development of of the team Design usually follows a linear system. We take resources
0: from the earth, turn them into products, sell those to consumers, and then discard the product once it's no longer functional or useful. Through circular design, the aim is to close the loop between waste and raw materials. So at the Centre for Circular Design, Becky and Kate are researching the strategies to make fashion systems circular.
4: I suppose the the thing that makes this centre so special is our linked practice and how everyone in the centre comes from a, a background of making, and we continue
0: that making through the work. At the centre, they seem to constantly have fascinating projects they're working on. So how do they even begin to approach some of fashion's greatest problems?
5: Yeah, well, we've taken a long time to develop the approach because we've known each other an awful long time. So we've sort of been part of a group doing practice-based design research for the best part of 20 years now. We've just basically been able to understand how each other works and then design a new centre I think, based on those strengths.
4: I mean, it's interesting, looking back sort of 20 years ago, the projects that you were writing at the time were very much circular economy projects, but before the term existed. So I think it, one of the very first projects that I joined full-time on was the Rethinking Recycled Textiles Worn Again project, which is something that I think has evolved into the work we're doing today, just right. sort of to say... Materials are such a big part of what we're doing and um, you know what we put out in the world, but do we really understand what it is we're, we're putting out there and, and the effect it's having? And then I guess alongside that, thinking more and more about the, the systems, the social systems and the, and the culture they sit within. It's not ever just about the materials.
0: Going into the creation of this episode, even our team was sceptical about diving into fashion tech. The complexity of tech across material innovation can seem dauntingly scientific, yet... Becky and Kate reminded us that it is humans who are working in labs, dreaming up solutions and pioneering circular innovation. So this isn't a case of man versus machine. It's much more a collaboration between people and their ideas. I think it's
4: almost impossible, isn't it, to separate out. It's quite interesting. People sometimes talk about technology and people as if they're separate. But in every technology project, you need you know user behavior change and business change. Any kind of innovation is only driven when... You get buy-in from from the individuals in any organisation. So I think, you know, the the technology and the people are entwined together from the very start. I mean, right back to the basic recycling projects, it only works when you get stuff back, and that continues to be an issue. I mean, some new technologies now are so user-driven anyway. People are involved literally in the making right, right through.
5: You know, the EU spotted this a while ago and put out a call... For the project we, we won in the end, Trash to Cash, around this idea of DDMI, Design Driven Material Innovation. The aim of Trash to Cash is to produce high quality
0: materials from waste while preserving fibre integrity and collaborating across industries
5: to create luxury materials that are infinitely recyclable. So it puts the designer in the, the scientific process, the innovation process at the beginning, and straight away you're into a people situation. How do scientists and designers talk to each other? How do the end users, the businesses that are going to adopt these innovations, how do they um, join in the process too and actually end up with something that's useful to them and useful to their customers? So the innovation projects that I've been involved in and I always look for are the ones that are set up um, with the conditions where people are part of the questions.
0: But then how do we take that power of collaboration and utilise it to identify and hopefully address the gaps in knowledge between what goes on in a research lab and what change gets implemented in industry?
5: Change can come in many forms. Our work is definitely in materials, innovation and industry. And the gaps that exist are, like Kate was sort of touching on, around all the sort of very nuanced decisions that need to be taken around what material we're using in what context to what end and understanding that the way in which we've worked in the past in a linear way is going to be very expensive it's not going to be our most effective way to be profitable and by profit I don't just mean money I mean Flourishing, I mean, sort of growth overall.
4: You know, we're in a very privileged place to be able to explore potential and possibility, and quite often something is entirely possible, but in an industry context, there are lots and lots of things that have to be in place to make it a firm result. So, you know, it's easy to say something, for example, you can say that something's biodegradable, and that's a really great end to a material, but you know, how does the consumer get it to the right place for that to happen? And that's still, there are gaps in the system. So I think there's gaps in knowledge, but there's also gaps in the
5: system that industry can't, can't bridge at the moment. Industry change can be very forceful and very empowering and very effective. That's not to take anything away from encouraging the consumer to, to change too, and to approaching things through policy. You know, those are the three biggies, really.
0: I love that Becky really drives home what we hear at The Drop tackled in episode two, that our perception of change is really in need of a transformation. Instead of trying to decide where change needs to come from, we all need to understand that a collective approach is how we're really going to make any sort of difference. Just as a policymaker is also a citizen, and a marketer is also a consumer, Becky and Kate as designers and researchers must also be communicators about their work.
5: It's quite interesting that we, in our projects, we've actually arrived at communications research more recently Mm -hmm. and it's sort of no coincidence or mistake because if you look at how long we've been in business, we were always focused on solutions research, I suppose, looking at design and how design can create a new product, prototype or process. But getting that to be effective, to to get it to be taken up, to get people to understand it, to get people to then build on it, that's a whole other step. You know, and we never came to this field as textile design researchers to become communication experts or communication researchers, but the two go hand in hand now because you have to get your ideas out there, you have to get feedback, and you have to um, make your work impactful and useful because it brings back tenfold what you put out there. We're constantly getting feedback on our work, which nudges us, in the right direction sometimes it can tempt us in the wrong direction no, it's, <laughs> it's just it's just the discourse it's it's not being in a sealed unit doing research but opening it out to the rest of the world and going let's make this together
4: I think quite often you, you find little gems of insights in these projects where, where you're collaborating with so many different um, parts of the of the circle and you have to stop and communicate those insights you know sometimes in a visual way or, or sometimes um, through other means to to sort of push things forward and keep things moving and that's really nice like that it's part. not about
5: solutions and it's not about results sometimes it's just about insights yeah and you know when you've been at it all this time <laughs> one would hope we have we're insights rich and you know that's, that's a useful thing to keep
0: sharing sharing those gems and keeping that conversation going is so important but then how do we ensure that we're using technology as a driver for positive change
4: I mean, you've used technology quite a lot in your your work lately, particularly. Yeah.
5: It's not been my first sort of go-to response Mm for any challenge, is to sort of go and find technology to solve it. I tend to sort of find it later on, I suppose, or happen across it, or get forced into using (laughs) it. But, you know, it's been like something like Trash to Cash has been super interesting to me because I've had to sort of really, as the sort of head of the communications package, sit and listen very carefully to the technology developments, and then understand them in order to communicate them more broadly. And in doing that, then I found myself having ideas about what I could do with materials for the first time with those technologies. So it's sort of like I'm coming at it from a slightly different point, if you like. You know, it's, it doesn't drive me, but I've arrived in a place where I'm finding that there actually are some very interesting systemic and sort of social solutions possible. some of the technologies that that people are looking at.
0: We talk about how to change our current systems and the benefits of gradual versus disruptive change, but what these examples showcase to me is that they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. One doesn't happen without the other.
5: When we find ourselves asking, you know, what's happening with all this focus on technology and will technology save the planet and do people effectively not have to change at all? Lucky them, you know, what is it? Of course it's neither, it's both. It's Every, everyone has to change, and we have to change and use everything that's available to us. So technology in the right hands can lead to some incredible solutions. Uh, but likewise, patterns of consumption are clearly too high. We're clearly over-consuming, and we're not being clever about how we're giving people what they would desire. This link to desire
0: reminded Becky of the work of Carlotta Perez, who focuses on the interwoven relationship
5: between technological shifts and economic shifts. Carlotta Perez was Mm. just fantastic at sort of saying, showing us all the different changes that have come across sort of five different eras where in a technology drove some change or at least labeled the change. But when she looked at it, she was sort of saying, well, actually it was the sort of partying or the, the pleasure that took place around that era that actually defined that era. So you have the industrial Revolution, you have you know all the different sort of eras, but she 's sort of saying it was this sort of societal activity that was a result of the wealth from the industrial change that actually defined the era and so she 's saying change comes about through desire, not through guilt, not through pressurizing people to change, but actually through through human pleasure and desire so so people will spend their money in the way that sort of brings them pleasure and you can kind of see how that could fit really well with the circular economy
4: actually um, that was the thing I took I think above everything else was this idea that her final her final thought was that we're currently going through this this technological shift around sort of you know industry 4.0 um AI but that what we can still define is where it takes us and that you know if we can redefine what our desire is in that context Mm. i.e sustainability Mm. then there's time for that technological shift to really do good Mm. so it was a really positive note on technology wasn't it and that it was you know society could drive it somehow rather than be a kind of a passive recipient of industry changes
0: i love this idea that we have agency over our collective futures as long as we realize that human mindsets and technological innovation have to work together
4: None of them work on their own. (laughs) I mean, that's the realisation. It's not a battle between the two. It's finding out how they interweave and how they can each benefit. And I think, you know, if there is a technology that doesn't do good, (laughs) then they're not the technologies we want to work with.
0: Within circularity and fashion, a lot of the current challenges surround the concept of waste and how we can alter our perceptions of waste in order to see it as a tool rather than a flaw. I think it's a resource I can see
5: it as you know an essential part of the patterns of the future and therefore not waste because it's fueling the next iteration of, of that product or use but yeah we can because we know that everything can be recycled but the biggest challenge is the economic barriers to actually achieving that less so the technical barriers but the financial drivers to want to do it so whilst it's still so cheap to use virgin polyester then business will use virgin polyester you know in its huge amounts
4: i tend to you know when it comes to materials i tend to zoom out and think about the fact that you know all the materials even if we're just to concentrate on natural materials they are waste from something you know all of the materials that we have access to are either recycled by nature or put in the earth from us to to decompose it at some point and the the main thing we've got to start understanding is how to do that without harm and how to be much cleverer about when we get rid of materials and how we can recover them so it feels like waste has always been part of the design process it's just everything is so multiplied now you know everything there are so many when we start to think about materials in simplistic terms it just kind of fails because the number of different types of materials that we now use as compared to 50 years ago is exponential Mm. and so every sort of solution for one material group you think oh that's only that's only a small part of it though Mm. so we have to work out all of the individual material cycles, but then also be able to see it as a whole and cope with the big mass of messy blends blends that
0: (laughs) the textile industry is full of. Quick note on messy blends. Think of when you look at the label of your t-shirt, oftentimes you'll see a percentage of, let's say, cotton and polyester. That percentage has been decided to optimize the feel and the performance of that textile. But it's ultimately one of the biggest hurdles when it comes to recycling textiles, because once that cotton is blended with that polyester, they become nearly impossible to separate from one another.
5: We're kind of doing that already here um, with our PhD researchers and through some of our own projects. Is actually understanding that there's the sort of cradle-to-cradle loops and the idea of monomateriality and the sort of iconic way of working that's been held up to us is indeed what we should be aiming for but that we also have an enormous mass of messy blends to deal with too. And if we can kind of be really innovative about how to reconsider the way that we reprocess those blends, then we can actually prepare the industry um, for recycling later on as well. So we're kind of looking at we like to be on the ground, don't we? And in this, on the factory floor looking at the real state of play and then go away and, like Kate says, zoom out and say, what does it mean if we make a change here? And um, and that's one of the things that we're realising is that we'll never have a cradle-to-cradle world, that we will always have messy blends, that we need a whole host of solutions um, and that people will be part of those solutions in different ways. You know, But if we want change to happen and change to happen quickly it'll come through money and policy at the end of the day same way that we stop smoking inside in the same way that we stop flying through car wind street screens the law will change affect um, the biggest changes and people will always follow the money
0: policy it can seem like the onus is placed on governments alone when we hear that policy is what's needed to create change but the thing is. It's active citizens in democratic societies who talk to their peers, cast votes and write letters that move that policy needle. Sometimes it's hard to imagine our everyday world changing, but it's also the nature of the world to change around us. Maybe it's time to take an active rather than a passive role in that change.
4: And I think that's where the circular economy conversation has done a lot of good, actually. I mean, Mm. you know, there are critics, but I think... What it's done is mobilise a whole new part of the industry to work on a common goal, to sort of, you know, see waste as a resource and make it work economically. I think there's nothing wrong with that. But it feels like it's an an extra layer on the sustainability question. And once we've made those connections and started to create loops, then we still want to go through all the sustainability checks and improve those Mm. systems. You know, we still
5: want to do it with less energy and cleaner technology and... Better labour conditions. Exactly. But we have a whole new model that we're working on in the meantime. And the biggest achievement, I think, is the nature of collaboration in that. Because you can have a company trying to be sustainable and they could try to do it on their own and go through their own internal checklist and make as much change as is within their power to change. But the change, if it happens, will only be in that company. As soon as you start having conversations about closing loops, circular economy, call it whatever you want. You have to go through your supply chain. You have to connect to your customer. You have to bring in LCA experts or new materials innovators. You actually have to collaborate. And so the the circular economy conversation is really putting a spotlight on the need to collaborate and what it takes to do that. And those muscles that we're flexing will take us forward through all areas of sustainability in the future because it's going to be about making change in partnership that has a big impact
4: and that's interesting i think from also an industry point of view so it's you know for example in textiles and fashion it's no good to just look at those industries it might be waste from a a food industry that is the byproduct that you need for your industry you know for your industry and your waste might go to something completely different and also i think it it breaks down or it makes the geographical boundaries kind of ridiculous in a way, you know, we have to start seeing this as a global global system, albeit local um, and connected. So I think those two things are really exciting in terms of, you know, where it, where it takes us on the next part of the journey.
0: Towards the end of my chat with Becky and Kate, we heard about the backlash they've received from engaging with fast fashion brands and trying to implement circular solutions. But what we can do is
4: push the boundaries of our understanding and ask difficult questions with the research. So, you know, one of our projects in particular at the moment is looking at fast and slow circular economy questions. And I think both the fast and the slow are really pushing the edges of what we might understand but, for example, you know, dealing with fast fashion in a sustainability context is not an easy thing to do. Um, we,
5: yeah, it's the first time, really, we've been trolled on, on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not a popular <laughs> yeah, project because, sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's almost sort of uh, to, to be looking at trying to make fast fashion better. The, the, the tone of the conversation has been to completely ignore it, eradicate it, ban it, or deny it, or just plain old hate it, you know, for very, very good reasons. But we want to come up with solutions, we're designers, we've got a creative sort of ability. So we sort of look at the practical reality of people consuming clothes in that way and we want to take it on as a challenge Mm. because we're sort of saying, well, it's human to want to change, to look different. So Mm. what are the other ways that we could be doing it? And it, it was like setting off an incendiary bomb you know, it, it just sort of really exploded around us. The fact that we were beginning to look at fast, and people were sort of saying, you know, why are you spending public money, and why are you spending your time on, you know, what they thought would be making more profit for a fast fashion company?
4: Actually, we're looking at both sides. You know, in both the fast and the slow, it's about the same question. You know, with the with the slow cycles, it's more about how do you do it with the sharing economy or new ways of. Of designing existing products and with the fast it's about how do you recover the materials really effectively so that they can be remade into a completely new product so it's they seem like they're at ends of the of the spectrum but actually they're both dealing with this idea of fashion
0: it's so interesting hearing about the criticism they've received for taking on fast fashion people are going to consume cheap clothing in high quantities whether the sustainability buffs like it or not So it's incredibly valuable to apply a circular model to the industry. It removes waste from the equation and preserves the natural resources through which we create textiles. Yet, it's also worth noting that this doesn't solve the whole issue. If you buy a dress for £5 at a high street store, it's probably generated a web of oppression from low pay to unsafe working conditions. That's the nature of cheap goods. So while Kate and Becky's work is a godsend to environmentalism, we still need to apply a critical eye to the fast fashion industry and implement behaviour change alongside this technological innovation.
5: We sort of came across this question, we really wanted to explore it and then for me as a researcher, I suddenly understood that there was that world of technology I could tap into. So if I started to look at each individual technology and then link them through the consecutive lives of a product, I could maybe get it so that I could get a product to last 50 years but each time working through a different sort of technology area to reinvent that product so for me the whole technology people thing and the circular economy came together when we started asking these questions about fast and slow and understanding that it's really about material cycles and actually keeping the materials in use for as long as possible and then reprocessing at appropriate points to reclaim those resources so what's fast isn't in any way should be labeled bad if you're reclaiming the resources and you are creating lower impacts from that process than bringing in a virgin product um, into the shops or into Mm. your wardrobe so small fast loops done in the right way can be of great benefit and bring people great pleasure
4: and we can't we sort of we don't want to go backwards we don't think we can go backwards we've got to keep you know reinventing our way out of of the mess in a way because we talk a lot to people who are obviously very driven by sustainability but you know that's not the whole picture and we've got to bring bring everyone else on board in different ways it's a a really it's a great challenge and when some of these things start to connect when the materials recovery technologies really um, start to kick in when we have a better understanding of how these new business models might be able to be, um, yeah.
5: Taken on. We should take a leaf out of Carlotta Perez's <laughs> writing and thinking and make the best party, the circular economy party, <laughs> <laughs> the best sort of you know dressing up moment and yeah. sense of joy and yeah. individual you know presentation to be those clothes that are absolutely circular, and then everyone will want, want to join the party.
0: Becky and Kate have such a full, well-rounded perspective, ranging across research and industry, raising so many questions surrounding where we all fit into this huge, complex puzzle, and how our relationship with technology weaves throughout. There's another piece of this puzzle that we haven't really addressed quite yet. The makers. In particular, a sector of making which puts nature right at the core. We sat down with Natsai. Her work combines textile design with synthetic biology using bacteria to dye materials, creating beautiful patterns with minimal environmental impact.
6: So my name is Natsai Audrey I come from an, an architecture background. I studied architecture at the University of Edinburgh. After that, I went to Central Saint Martins to explore materials via what is now material futures. At the time, it was called textile futures. And really, the course was about... A lot of things for me it was about how technology is influencing material culture and the technology i was interested in was synthetic biology it was This sort of convergence with digital computational science and biology and engineering that spoke to me, especially coming from architecture, which is super multidisciplinary. You can't build anything without an engineer. There's (laughs) this understanding that we have a new way to engineer life systems. So how does design live there? So I started to explore materials in that context, really interested in the speculative realm of this. What are we going to build if we're saying that we can design life but I quickly figured that for myself I wanted to actually work with living systems to understand that and maybe to pose new questions right there's this concept of learning by doing and the theory was something that. Was very important to enabling the making and then feeding back into that theory. So I started to collaborate with a scientist after I graduated, Professor John Ward at University College London at the Biochemical Engineering Department. And he kind of just allowed me to be a designer in his synthetic biology lab, which pretty much involved me learning how to co-culture with living organisms and see what you could push them to do in a design context. So we were working with um, streptomyces helicolor, which is a pigment producing microbe. And so as a designer with a, a non-scientific background, it was vital to be able to collaborate with somebody who could understand the value of what I was trying to explore but also bring that science knowledge into that. And I think together we developed a a really interesting framework as to how you might start to integrate living systems into the design of biology, but from a design perspective, as opposed to the pure sort of biotech, engineering, synthetic biology world. And I am the founder of Faber Futures, which is a biodesign creative lab that is exploring our future based on emerging biotechnologies. Specifically, we're looking at synthetic biology. Uh, We're interested in in the idea that you can start to rationalize the design of a living organism for it to create specific materials with determined properties. And so for us, biology is something of a design space. To really inquire what can be designed at that molecular scale, can it interface with the macro of the human scale and, and then sort of
0: planetary scales? That's what we're interested in uncovering. The science of her work can get pretty complex, so first I needed to understand what synthetic biology actually is. So maybe
6: um, it's helpful to consider synthetic biology as an engineering approach to designing biology which is to break it down to component parts that can be assembled and with the hope that you can control and optimise, for example, an organism and what it produces. And so that is very different to working with an organism that is wild-type, i.e. found all around us as we understand um, organisms to be.
0: All right, I know we're just getting into it, and there are probably some terms in there that might be a bit unfamiliar Synthetic biology, biotechnology, streptomyces helicala, And you might be wondering, how does this even relate back to technology?
6: Yeah, I mean, it, it, biology is technology. And it, it's all of these technologies are kind of converging to enable us to be able to engineer living systems to do certain things. So it's very difficult to pinpoint one technology and say, this is what biotechnology is. It um, Synthetic biology, for example, brings together um, a multitude of different scientific disciplines and design is very much a part of that ecosystem of approaches to explore how to engineer life
0: so when design and biology meet some pretty incredible things can happen but let's get back to basics we're talking about designing with living organisms it sounds like a science fiction dream doesn't it but in real life and how does this fit into a fashion space
6: I am a materials person. Okay. I am interested in how materials can be propagated using living systems okay. and how we begin to interact with them as designers, if you're a textile designer, if you're a fashion designer, if you're an architect. And so for me, those are disciplines through which I um, explore the potential for um, technologies like synthetic biology. I think about fashion a lot, <laughs> and it's very integral to the framework around scaling for consumer-facing industries. So it's just applying that thinking to, to those different design fields.
0: And what is the actual process of dyeing with bacteria? So when I started experimenting
6: with streptomyces CD colour to dye textiles, one day I, I was like, maybe if I put the bacteria directly onto the textile, they will live on there, and all of this pigment, instead of it dispersing into the medium, it might disperse onto the textile. And so it did, and it was fast with no chemicals. And I was sort of immediately aware of how little water it had taken for that um, interaction to merge. I very quickly understood that this could be a completely different way of dyeing textiles and so the next question is how do you mediate an invisible medium <laughs> because you want to make beautiful things with it you want to be able to push expression you want to understand what is screen printing to biological dyes in this in this sense what is it to create a, a beautifully crafted artifact with bacteria. (laughs) Uh, And how do you scale it? And so the work has really been about exploring this very simple interface. Uh, The textile is an interface. Myself as a designer, I guess my role is to create the conditions for the bacteria to interact with that textile. And when that bacteria interacts with that textile, it's Metabolizes the nutrients, and one of the byproducts is an antibiotic that is actinodin. And this antibiotic is blue pigment. Streptomyces cedicol is really interesting because it's something that's been used in, in science for a really long time as relates to antibiotics. But you put a designer in that same space, and suddenly it's, huh, this is a dye. How do I work with it? What are the parameters? And I think working with it directly. Literally just growing the bacteria onto the textiles and learning what that means, what it doesn't mean, what it can do, what it can't do. It gives you this incredible understanding of potential.
0: Why are innovative processes like these important? Well, the dyeing and treatments of fabrics is one of the most resource-intensive and environmentally destructive elements of the fashion system. And when it comes to solutions, if scientists are working over here and designers are working over there, Then how do fashion consumers be made aware of the technological possibilities? So
6: one thing I would say is I don't think that's a science problem necessarily of um, work being created that is hard to live outside. I think designers are um, guilty of that. Uh, I think a whole host of disciplines do that. And, And actually the interesting question is academia versus industry academia versus practice. What was interesting for me anyway, going into um, an academic institution to collaborate on a scientist as an independent designer, was that I wasn't beholden to uh, the academic framework of publishing and needing to speak to a specific funder's needs. And so that gave me huge flexibility and freedom to have agency over what the work could be which lent itself to me being able to communicate it how I wanted to communicate it. It developed how it needed to develop relative to my own interests Um, and I think that's what happens sometimes when you're working very much at the edge without a framework is nobody needs to give you permission to to do the work and nobody has expectations about what that delivery needs to be but I think in consolidating that learning because that's you know, what I'm passionate about, you then have this kernel that can start to feed thinking across lots of different realms. And that communication can happen with um, a scientist, um, that communication can happen with the public, that communication can happen with an industry, across sectors, it's always going to shift and just being able to be flexible enough. I think I get that because I didn't have boundaries. The only boundaries I feel I've had, um, probably funding, um, the organism itself, it has limitations because you're kind of trying to make it do what you want to make it do, as a non-scientist who doesn't understand its inherent biology. And not all scientists understand the inherent biology of anything anyway. And so bridging the the expectations of what it is from a design point of view versus what the life is was a very interesting environment to consider feasibility versus what you can share with the world and how you share it. I'm just very fortunate (laughs) that my microorganism... um, is just kind of incredible at dyeing textiles <laughs> and I can show. You know, I don't even need to speak. I can just show a textile. Most people don't know what what they're looking at until you, you say, do you know that that was dyed with, with a microbe? And then suddenly the entire dynamic of that interaction shifts. So scientists, unfortunately, a lot of the times what they're working on isn't visible. And also the time scales for scientific research are so much longer than what we're used to in a design context. I've been working with this organism for the last seven years and I've barely scratched the surface. It's a difficult field if you're impatient. It's a difficult field if you're trying to make the biology fit into your industrial design context, which is, you know, make, churn it out, repeat in a very small fashion cycle, for example. Um, Science doesn't work like that. And so by the time a scientist has you know, really meaty work to show that's going to change the world. Um, you know, they've been working at it their whole lives. And mm-hmm. I think maybe that's what we, we miss with design is what is the slow inquiry that helps us discover new things that can be um, compelling, if not more, than that quick realisation that something works and get it out there.
0: And I really liked there where you said, uh, my organism, where you're kind of no. taking ownership of it. And I think yeah. that's really interesting because it makes it feel like those are kind of your your lab partners
6: yeah it's a symbiosis <laughs> yeah um, and i don't and I don't mean that in a sort of throwaway way it's kind of inherent to what I do it's more than having a pet it's I've always used terminology that suggests some kind of co-authorship and and not as a fluffy wonderful conceptual thing to to put out there but because really that's the the reality of the labour structure in trying to think about how we co-exist co-create with nature you can't have this top down thing, it's, I say my microbe in the same way as I say my collaborator because we're sort of inherently tied to one another in that sense but also there's this livingness right yeah that is not the same as a commodity material artifact you don't mm. say my lab dies from you know chemical based dyes <laughs> you just don't have that and you know maybe there's a danger with anthropomorphizing living systems sure but it, it definitely feels like a livingness that is that is about companionship
0: yeah Trying to understand that relationship with nature is paramount at a time when we're beginning to realize the implications of running a world on fossil fuels. Because while electric cars and plastic bands are starting to see the spotlight, it isn't widely enough understood that our polyester blouses and nylon-blended denim comes from the same substance, oil. And with a system powered on limited resources, I asked Natsai, Do you believe in our ability to change that system? And her response was a resounding, Yes. (laughs) Easy enough. Willpower, change of
6: business models, change of values, change of power structures. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's just, you know, it's not that easy to change a monolithic beast. But I think that nature can be unforgiving. And at some point, when you have something... Of an infestation, is going to evolve itself. The system is going to evolve itself, and it's often
0: better to work with nature than against it.
6: Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in the notion that we change our um, economic system, not to want to extract and not just to drive profit, but you know, what if we placed biodiversity as a key indicator of success? Oh my God, everything shifts. I don't even know what that means. Um, but I know that what we do here is about values. If you value something, you're going to, do, you're going to act in a way that um, enables it to, to exist, to thrive. That would be nice.
0: <laughs> yeah. I love this balance of a hopeful, optimistic perspective with a hefty dose of realism. And especially when it comes to a conversation around technology, we are often bombarded by advancement like the need to upgrade your phone every year. So how do we ensure we're designing with a purpose and not just designing for the sake of it?
6: The precedent, I guess, is, you know, what a digitized world has done. We've kind of exponentially moved forwards with certain technologies just because we can, not because we should. Or should that way and I think the same is true for for anything what are the parameters what's the framework in which this intervention exists is it joined up thinking are we thinking of a system or are we thinking of a single opportunity yeah I think the the human aspect of this is really really important and I would go a step further and say it's not just about humans it's about other species and so how are we going to make that cultural mental leap to first of all love all humans and then have space for other species. This technological revolution specifically to do with biotechnologies I see it as an opportunity for a cultural shift to understand livingness as this all-encompassing thing and maybe that's an optimism of sorts but I hold on to that. Yeah, because if, if not that, then what's the plan,
0: people? <laughs> Here at The Drop, we're advocates for creating a society that's worth sustaining. So is there a system where humans and the environment can work together to thrive?
6: You know, this decoupling of humanity from, from everything else is uh, flawed thinking already. We are codependent. this planet at at the same time we, we also understand maybe there are other factors and they're kind of invisible so how do you bring that into a cultural understanding of me as a human versus that plant that animal and i think it's it's really it's something of great humility when you read about when you read about mycelium and how mycelium is this beautiful giant organism and a communication network just as we are able to operate as a collective towards some greater good, hopefully, you know? So there are these important synergies that completely decouple us as you know, essentially top of the food chain. What does a whole system's approach look like that doesn't privilege the human experience alone?
0: Then we started to together speculate about what all of this means for our collective future. And to be honest, we went a bit back and forth about it. As you can imagine, it's not a simple question. What I can say
6: is that I do think that the the convergence of all of these technologies is going to be really messy for us to unpack and to understand how to try to deliver a future that's equitable for everyone. So that's where the hard work is. is isn't necessarily in dreaming about a future. It's understanding the now and the ecosystem of now. That's not the right way of putting it. but All of the different factors that determine how these things are built today, that's what's going to write that future. And, and, you know, that's, that's the problem with industry. Being decoupled away from industry is not really knowing what industry is doing, but then there's the speculation. How do you bring the two so that the speculation can actually help build it out to be a better version of itself?
0: And then how can we take these solutions and ensure sustainable growth so that they can be implemented on a larger scale? But that, that, is, that is the big question and it's, it's super important
6: it determines everything this, this promise of designing with living systems whether it's synthetic biology or it's growing mushrooms or it's training plants there's always going to be an impact for the things that we do and so what are the conditions in which this activity is happening to justify its existence where it is happening becomes a very important question. So, yes, can we scale biology? Will it still be sustainable? What are the limits? Can we live within those limits? Can we thrive in those limits? That's the design question of our time.
0: The Drop is produced by myself, Claire Weiss, as well as Bronwyn Sire, Amy Foster-Taylor, and Pippa Smart. We'd like to thank our three guests from this episode, Professor Rebecca Early, Dr. Kate Goldsworthy, and Nassai Audrey Chiesa. Our theme music is produced by Troy Hewson.